brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechats.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Strap in for another wild ride, Higher Side Chatters. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood. And so much of our time in this world is sadly spent working jobs we care very little about so we can maintain a home to watch stale sitcoms in through the evenings. And we get stuck making safe, stable, and unfulfilling choices out of fear of falling through society's cracks. But what's really at the heart of our mundane decision-making and commitment to time-wasting entertainment? Why do we settle for being a cog in someone else's machine so easily? Well, I would venture to guess that many of us don't spend enough time thinking about life, consciousness, and meaning, but instead have fallen into the mental traps of the mainstream narrative that our existence is the result of a random process of evolution in a cold, random, chaotic universe that's less about finding happiness and fulfillment, and more about making sure we get the most breaths before we're snuffed out of existence forever. We've been conditioned to waste our time here, incepted to settle for less, trained to think we have no control, and tricked into the idea that we might as well just become the best car salesman in central Ohio, cling to our job stacking boxes in the Amazon warehouse, or go on pretending to be satisfied with our position at the call center, because what else is there? Well, I would say that curiosities like the near-death experience, deeper levels of meditation, psychedelics, and even entity encounters are all baked-in aspects of reality that, although rare, remind at least some of us that life is a gift that we gave ourselves to be enjoyed, to seek adventure, and to know that we can play it any way we decide without fear of anything. And why not when death comes for us all eventually? Well, today's guest, Dr. Raymond Moody, might agree with at least some of that, because he's made a life as the leading authority on near-death experience and even coined the term. He's an MD with a PhD in philosophy, as well as a world-renowned scholar, lecturer, and author of bestsellers like Life After Life, The Light Beyond, Coming Back, and Making Sense of Nonsense, The Logical Bridge Between Science and Spirituality, as well as his own autobiography, Paranormal, My Life in Pursuit of the Afterlife. I feel very fortunate to talk to him today in a time where the themes of risk, health, quality of life, and dying are very potent and deserve to be examined appropriately with the clues we have. So let's get into it. The NDE term coining teacher, life engagement advocate, and true magi of the mysteries of life, Dr. Moody, my man, welcome to the higher side. 
Thank you so much, Russ. This is just, you're really a fun guy. So thank you for this opportunity. I try. I try. It's a real pleasure. I'm a big fan of what you've done. And to be responsible for a household term like near-death experience is impressive in and of itself. You've been doing this research since 1968. So you've been thinking and talking about this stuff for over 50 years now. And in the interest of trying to change it up a little bit for you, I guess to kick this off, I would ask, When it comes to the perceptions around life's meaning and the level of engagement that we have with it, how have you seen these things morph through the decades? Because it feels like the collective thoughts and behaviors in this regard have changed pretty radically since the 60s in particular. What do you think? Well, yeah. One shift I've seen. I'm 76 now. I found out about near-death experiences in 1962 when I was 18 years old. Then I was a first-year philosophy student at the University of Virginia, and I read about this in Plato's Republic, which is really kind of – it's about near-death experiences. Really, it kind of culminates in this near-death experience at the end. So I talked to my professor Hammond, Professor Hammond, and I said, what is all this? Because I, I was not religious. My dad was kind of sarcastic about religious things. and. My interest was astronomy. So anyway, I asked Professor Hammond about this, and he said, yeah, the early Greek philosophers studied cases of people who had almost died and revived. And he said that Plato was sort of positive about this. But meanwhile, Democritus, who was the Greek philosopher, had just figured out from reasoning alone that There had to be little tiny things that are too small to be seen that make up the material world, which he called atoms. And Democritus knew about these things, too, but he said that all this is is the residual biological activity in the body. Well, at that point, I didn't have any sense that this was anything beyond a Greek phenomenon, but I was interested in it anyway. Then three years later at UVA, I met Dr. George Ritchie, who was a professor of psychiatry there at that time. And George had had such an experience himself. And I heard it from his own mouth. And I was just blown away by him more than anything else, because to this day, George was just the finest man I ever knew. And when I heard him, I knew that It was real to him, if you know what I mean. I I didn't know what to make of it. And so I got interested in it. Then I heard a few more cases. Then when I started being a philosophy professor in 1969, began to hear these from my students and from my fellow faculty members. So up to now, I've talked with thousands of people. And what I've seen, Russ, and the way that this says the attitude has changed is that when I started talking about this in the early 70s, this was startling to people. I mean, it was a a real novelty. But in the intervening years, as you pointed out, it's just become part of the background of the civilization. Everybody knows about them. And what I have seen in that point, you're a little young to know this, but when I was in college, Critical thinking was still the thing, you know? (laughs) So I was a professor of logic for a while. And to me, critical thinking is very important. And what I've seen just in the past few decades, more than anything else, is a gradual 
whittling away of people's sense of critical thinking. Mm -hmm. And I think that really affects this because it's in a world where everybody just sort of, you know, they can find support for whatever they want to believe or to think. I think that's a pretty terrible situation because, you know, you talked about curiosity. That's what's defined my professional life. I first looked through a telescope when I was about seven or eight years old. And I'm just still so curious about the world. And I think that looking back at age 76, I see all these people who chased all kinds of things like fame and power and money or sex or whatever they chase, that I've spent my life chasing knowledge. And I got to say at 76, that that's a very satisfying kind of thing. I think that of all the things I, with psychiatry patients I've had and whatever, seeing people chase all kinds of things, what really seems to be satisfying more than anything else for people over a course of a lifetime is knowledge. Not that we'll ever have much of it. You know, I realized looking through a telescope at age eight, that I'm never going to know much of anything. And that's okay. That's okay. Because, you know, the little bit you can understand is fun. And getting around to the point of that long rambling monologue is that I think that people who entertain some idea that they just want to believe and they want it to be true, that's basically a very dysphoric situation. I mean, look at them. They're never happy. It's like if you put out there what you want to be the case, and then you build up some kind of flimsy argument for it, always you're going to be uncomfortable because self-deception, by definition, we know on some level when we're fooling ourselves, right? And so to me, the way out of this is to really learn the principles of reasoning and critical thinking, and then just subject things to the most rigorous logical process you can. And then once you go through that and you come out with some idea on the other side, at least you have some sort of confidence, right, (laughs) that it may be true. And to me, the reasoning process in itself is just fine. So I went through years, I had no idea whether there's life after death or not. Even beginning in medical school, I realized that the common explanation, oh, this is oxygen deprivation to the brain. I knew that wasn't the case because my first year in medical school, one of my wonderful professors took me aside one day because by then I was kind of known for investigating this already. And she said, you know, Dr. Moody, she said, I've been wanting to talk to you because of cementation I had, she used that word, when I was resuscitating my mother. And so basically, she told me that when she was trying unsuccessfully to resuscitate her own mother, that as her mother died, she herself, the physician, got out of her body and looked down, saw the dead body of her mother and her own body standing beside. Then as she was trying to get my bearings, she said, she looked around. She saw the, her mother there with her now, now in spirit form. She said she saw this tunnel and the light coming from it, and she saw her mother recede into this tunnel being greeted by 
her relatives and friends who had passed away, and then she came back to her own body. Well, subsequently, I've heard, you know, many dozens, hundreds probably, of those kind of experiences, which is the same thing we know of as a near-death experience in terms of its contents. But it occurs not to somebody who almost dies and recovers, but to somebody else who is not ill or injured, who's standing there by the person who's passing away. And so whatever this is, it's not oxygen deprivation to the brain. Now, there's a certain kind of person who's just afraid of, you know, I've known people who I knew in graduate school who are still rehashing their own doctoral dissertations from that period. And, you know, there's a certain kind of person who wants knowledge to stop when they get their doctoral degrees, right? And I'm not exactly criticizing them. I mean, it's a sad thing for me. But my point is that to hold on to these old saws just because they make you comfortable, in the long run, that's not very satisfying. Well said. I agree with you. Yeah, I just feel like I've realized a long time there's no logical way to infer with certainty that there's an afterlife. But where I've come in it is I just, I give up. I mean, I've heard things like I have dear, dear friends who are physicians, lots of them, who've had their own near-death experiences or who have empathically co-participated in the near-death experiences of their patients they were resuscitating. And at a certain point, I just give up. I mean, to my, and it's still a very counterintuitive to me. Well, let me step back to the empathic death experience that you were bringing up. For the people in the audience who aren't super familiar with that, it is that strange phenomenon where just by being with someone when they pass on, that can trigger an NDE-like experience in a healthy person just due to proximity. And to me, that is one of the most exciting new avenues of this sort of research. I am curious about your thoughts on why that might occur. Why would that be a mechanism within our reality that when you're experiencing the death of a loved one in front of you, you go out of your body and have a similar experience? What would be behind that for that to be in our reality? For us, I don't know. And you know, I mean, I know it occurs. I hear it from people all the time. And it is kind of shocking in a way. The most shocking part of it is you know, one of the common things in a near-death experience that everybody knows about are these life reviews, right? People say that often in the company of being a complete life of complete love and compassion, they re review everything they've ever done in a sort of hologram, and they see everything they've ever done in a timeless state not just from their own perspective when they did it, but from the perspective of the other people with whom they were interacting. And so if you see yourself in that panorama doing something mean to somebody, then in the review, you are actually, you're embedded in their consciousness where you feel directly and empathically the hurt and so on. Or if you see yourself doing a kind-hearted thing to somebody, you feel the good feelings. And so the most shocking thing about these empathic death experiences is that even that element of it sometimes occurs to the bystanders. Like, I've talked to a lot of people who 
say that, yeah, as Uncle Charlie or whoever died, that I sort of saw his whole life in this panorama. And I got to say, that's very embarrassing to me because, you know, I mean, I'm hoping to recuse myself from my own life review. And, you know, you think about the idea there might be a spectator there is kind of embarrassing, right? And yet the people I've heard this from say, in effect, that it's no, it's in the midst of the experience that's very natural. And that, as I like to think of it as a psychiatrist, everybody has pretty much the same secrets, right? So in that context, it becomes more understandable. But Mm -hmm. as to why this occurs, which is your very good question, I don't know. I know that it does because I hear it from people all the time. And even that, though, Russ, really doesn't give us logical proof of an afterlife. However, I do think that it is now possible to have something that, if not a rational proof of an afterlife, is at least a major breakthrough in the rational investigation of life after death. And what that comes from, I think, is that we've got to meet the problem halfway. I mean, David Hume, I'm sure you know him, he's the great skeptic of the 18th century who talked about causality and inductive logic and so on. And in his essay on immortality, he said, by the mere light of reason, it seems difficult to prove the immortality of the soul which is kind of an understatement of his, if you think about it. But then he went on to say, some new species of logic is required for that purpose, and some new faculties of the mind that they may enable us to comprehend that logic. And what he was getting at, which I think is correct, is that the mind we have and the logic we have in 2021 are just not up to the problem of life after death. It's something that's beyond us. Well said. And actually, this is something I was going to ask you about because you have this other book called Making Sense of Nonsense. And it also makes me think about dream language and dreaming because modern science says dreaming is just a screensaver for the mind. But many cultures put a lot of importance on the dream world and consider it in the same or similar context as the spirit world. And it's always this archetypal paradoxical type of symbolism, and it has meaning, and it is often illogical at times. I'm curious if you think that the dream world and dream interpretation might relate to the content of this new nonsense-based logic. Well, absolutely, because many dreams, when you try to formulate them in language, it turns out to be nonsense, right? In, In the context of the dream, It seems like it makes sense. But once you wake up and you try to put it into words, it's nonsensical. Some dreams can be literal and prosaic, you know, and you can put them in words. But many of them are just, you know, when you try to formulate them in words, you know, it just sounds like nonsense, which is really whenever anybody, I think, goes from one dimension to another in their minds, They're forced to talk nonsense, to talk about a transition into some other kind of reality, like the Escher drawings, the people on the mill wheel, for example. You see the water going down the mill run and 
going over the wheel and then it goes down and then turns an angle and then goes down again and then goes down again and then turns another angle goes down again and it's right back up at the top of the mill wheel right Mm -hmm. and you can take those escher drawings and you could with a ruler and a protractor you could describe that whole two-dimensional surface but when you try to describe what's in the picture you get into talking nonsense so i think that we've got to prepare ourselves for the fact that in order to comprehend the afterlife in any sort of rational way, that we've got to take charge and really change our own minds. And that means that we've got to be able to think about things that don't make sense in a logical way. And there's a very specific reason why we can't. By the way, I'm a great lover and admirer of Aristotle, but one of his deficits or difficulties was that he was so literal-minded, whereas his master Plato had been trying to figure out not just how intelligible and meaningful in literal and figurative language works, but he was also trying to figure out how nonsensical language works. And he had gone quite away with it. He figured out that there's different kinds of nonsense or different types. Like if I say to you, Twas brillig and the slithy toves, that's nonsense. But now listen to this. Holiness breeds the vestigial lipstick with spontaneity. That's nonsense too, but it's a different type of nonsense, right? Or listen to this third sentence. That cannibal you men just ate was the last one in this county. That's nonsense too, but yet a different type. Or if I say, hat thoroughly the if, zoom, how zest, that's yet a different type of nonsense. Or if I say, you know, that's, I've identified over 70 different patterns and types of nonsense. And each one of those types has its own specific effects on the mind. Hmm. So what Aristotle did when he codified the logic that you and I are using right now and that exists in our society that was too much for him, you know, too high a hurdle that you could make sense of things that don't make sense. And so therefore, since he had such an enormous effect on our thinking, then we are here in 2021, we're unable to think logically if we come up against something that's nonsensical. Now, what I'm saying with a great amount of confidence, and I'm willing to be refuted on this, I want people to look at what I say and try to find a hole in it. Because if they can find a hole in it, then I'm propelled closer to the truth, right? Because I can see my mistake. But if they can't find a hole in it, then what I'm saying is there's a whole new way that we can sort of storm the afterlife. We can reshape our own minds to be able to think about it. And when we do, when enough people are able to think logically about nonsense, then eventually they'll all have a near-death experience, right? Well, when we do, if we know how to think about unintelligible things, when later on we happen to have a near-death experience, then we're going to be able to come back and tell everybody else about it in a way that makes sense. 
Yes, I like what you're saying. And some previous guests of mine have brought up the theory of Charles Fort, that humanity moves through ages of dominance. We had the dominant of religion, where everything was filtered through that lens. Then we moved into the dominant of science, which we're in. And then he thought we'd move into a dominant of wider inclusion, where we fold in all the stuff we've dismissed as unscientific or paranormal in a way saying that what makes sense, what we consider true, actually changes in eras, and that sort of fits with what you've been getting at. And I like it because mystics and monks and shamans, they tend to speak in symbolism and paradoxes, and there's that theme that the greatest truth can't be spoken directly. It must be danced around, and that's really intriguing. Maybe that's why you consider it the bridge between science and spirituality. Oh, yeah, this is absolutely correct, Russ. And you know, if everybody listening right now will go back in your mind to 1915, okay, and just imagine that you're a person in 1915, a very well-educated and well-informed person of 1915. Now listen to the following sentence. All four of Ethel's grandparents perished and were lost in a shipwreck long before her mother and father were born. Now, in 1915, that makes no sense, right? It's just nonsense. Now, add all of our intervening knowledge, like the role and heredity of DNA, the possibility of cloning and gene engineering, and we can imagine a scenario of sending a probe down and getting the DNA from the bones and then by cloning and so on. So you see what would be totally unintelligible in 1915 is in 2021, even though it hasn't yet happened, that at least we can imagine that it could, right? Right. Or to say, like, I watched a movie on my phone in 1900. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, I watched a movie on my phone this morning. And like you were saying, what's unintelligible changes. And I am confidently predicting that in the next decade or so, even though Technically, the idea of an afterlife is unintelligible because it's self-contradictory, right? Like to say that there is life after death means that there is life after the final irreversible cessation of life, which is self-contradictory. But what I'm saying is that in the next decade or so, this is going to be just like the telephone, right? That what was in 1915, it's absurd to say you watched a movie on your phone this morning, but in 2021, it's a daily occurrence. Yes. And let me ask you this, because this is something that I think is really interesting that, yeah, we will move into an era where what we are willing to accept culturally will change. But this is really kind of Western centric, right? Because when you look at the Egyptians or the Greeks or many indigenous cultures, they have very robust and detailed models of the afterlife and the processes that happen and the various layers of the soul and awareness. And when I see that stuff, my impression is that these things can be known and mapped out if a culture decides to explore consciousness in full. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. I think that we can storm the afterlife, for want of a better term. And what I mean by that is that even though our logic and the mind we have don't do it, we're in a position where we can actually transform our mind. I taught this course for many years, beginning in 1969, gradually developed it, where I taught my students 
to think logically about things that don't make sense. There were even exercises, like exercises where they would have to write different types of nonsense and then reflect on how it made them feel and then to shift to writing another type of nonsense. And they could actually feel the wheels in their mind turning in a new direction. And I've just had, you know, I guess dozens and dozens of students I've had over the years who've looked back on that as a sort of mental transformation point to them. And so right now I'm conducting a kind of collective study. It's encouraging people to go through these exercises and learning how to think logically about unintelligible things with the expectation that eventually some of these people are going to have near-death experiences. And it's already happened, by the way, that it's happened once. And that when they come back, they'll have a whole new way of telling the rest of us about it. So it's a kind of bridge across the worlds. A few years back, I had this wonderful man. He's an elderly gentleman who's a renowned artist and scientist. And he had taken one of my seminars on nonsense. Then a few years later, he had a near-death experience. And he said, while I was over there, my mind went back to the nonsense seminar. And he said, and I saw that what you were saying is true. He said, you can't comprehend how this world is connected to that world unless you take the unintelligibility axis into account was the way he put it. But to put that into simple terms, you know, Greg, Russ. Oh, it's Greg. There is, uh, it, Greg, Dr. Seuss's books have sold over hope you're sitting down, over 600 million copies. And you're too young to remember doo-wop music, where the idea was to have nonsense as the main line or the harmony and then meaningful parts. And it was a major form of music back in the 50s. Or scat singing with Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong, who are just it's just nonsense syllables, but it really puts you into a, an amazing state, like the glossolalia or speaking in unknown tongues of certain religious groups. It's just repeating nonsense syllables until you go into this really phenomenal ecstatic state. Well, there's also chanting and there's yeah. also like the ikaros of the shaman. These things, I guess there is some relationship between getting into that mind state and possibly expanding our consciousness to bleed over into the spirit world. Oh, absolutely. And the structure of a shaman song, which was the linguistic vehicle they used for transporting their minds over to the other world, it consists of nonsense syllables and meaningless refrains like hickory dickory dot, you know, it's a meaningless refrain, and put together with elements of meaningful language so that the combination of them both together has a power that neither one has alone. And I used to show this to my students with a simple example. Everybody knows the nursery rhyme, hickory dickory dock. The mouse ran up the clock, the clock struck one and down it ran, hickory dickory dock. Well, we all know that. Everybody knows it. But if you take out the nonsense, what is it? It's the mouse ran up the clock, the clock struck one, and down it ran. That goes nowhere, you see. But if you combine it with the nonsense, 
it has the power which is so great that everybody literally knows that or as I've lectured around the world at the English speaking world, there's a playground rhyme that many, many people have wonderful associations to. One bright day in the middle of the night, two dead boys got up to fight. Back to back, they faced each other, drew their swords and shot each other. A blind man came to see the fray. A dumb man came to shout hooray. A deaf policeman heard the noise and came and killed those two dead boys. Now, that is pure nonsense, and yet you've got to admit that it brings a very vivid story alive in your mind. Yes, and it sounds a lot like the kind of thing even some people who experience entity visitations. There is this rhyme and this paradox to the way when we make contact with what seems like some kind of intelligence on the other side, they do talk like this. And it's really kind of curious because I would also say to bring up a somewhat near-death experience adjacent phenomenon, which is psychedelics, in the experience I had, the transportation to the spirit world was accompanied by what can only really be described as a nursery rhyme, an unknown nursery rhyme being sung by kids, I would say, but it also overlaps with NDE in a lot of other ways like out-of-body, tunnel experience, meeting with people of light, a sense of rapidly rising into the heavens, and key, a reluctance to return. And another thing you've mentioned is this feeling that it's more real than real life. Being a disembodied consciousness feels like a natural state of being. And I absolutely would concur with that when it comes to my own limited experiences. But what are your thoughts about the mechanisms that trigger these things? I mean, it seems to me that they are clues in our reality that, yes, we're born here without a memory and we don't know that we're an eternal soul. And maybe we aren't. You know, like you say, you can't conclude that, that the that these things would continue just be like, what if you obliterated the body? Like, would the consciousness still be out there? But it feels like if we just trust them, they are clues to tell us that, hey, have some fun with this life because there's more over there. That's right. That's right. This world is relentless. You can sit back and reflect and you can see that it's an illusion once you think it through. But then the phone rings or a car comes zooming down the road. I mean, there's always a distraction so that it's very hard to maintain that state, that life comes at us so relentlessly that even when you do realize it's dreamlike nature, then it intervenes. And it does hurt, right? I mean, the brick falls on your foot and you feel something that's unpleasant. And yeah, the older people get. I had a wonderful experience when I was about 30 of being a psychiatrist in a geriatrics clinic. But this was a place where all the movers and shakers in this little town came because, you know, if you're the mayor or the police chief, well, you can't go into the front door of the psychiatric clinic along with the rest of us peons. You know, you got to sneak in the back. And so I had this really great experience of a year with talking with all these very wonderful, older, distinguished people who were smart and reflective. And I heard them constantly say during that time something like, you know, Raymond, the older I get, as I look back, the more and more I feel like 
my life has been a kind of play or a drama or they'd say like a television show or a movie or whatever. And I even heard Joseph Campbell, the great mythologist, make that same comment. And I've heard it from people all over the world that the older you get, the more you see the kind of dramatic structure of this world. And so a great writer by the name of Elie Wiesel, who had been to Auschwitz and, you know, he survived. And then after the war, he became a very distinguished Nobel Prize winning writer. And Elie Wiesel said, God made man because he loves stories. And what he was getting at is that what is your life but your story, right? right. And, and even your consciousness is kind of geared to when something new happens to you, what your consciousness does, it weaves it into a continuing narrative of your life story, right? And then as I gather, not you know, just from observing my own kids who've been kind of raised in a religion-free environment and you know, we don't talk with our kids about life after death. We talk about how to pay the phone bill and, you know, what's for dinner. And they found out that I was interested in my near-death experience work from looking me up on the Internet, right? So they were really raised not in this world, that kind of thought patterns at all. And yet both of them very early in life recalled, you know, where they were before they came to us and... So, you know, I've kind of, again, sort of just heaved a sigh and said, well, apparently, when you're finished up with one story, the one you're on now, then you go through some incomprehensible process. And as I gather, you're back on another storyline. Yes. And so life is story. But when you're enmeshed in the story or immersed in it, it's hard to get out of that framework. And even if you do for a little bit, like I said, then something comes up. You get hungry or a brick falls on your toe. Or... So it's kind of set up to come at us so relentlessly that it's hard to maintain this perspective that it's an illusion. Although as soon as you start thinking about it in the depth, you realize, yeah, it is an illusion. Yeah, very persistent illusion. But I love this theme <laughs> of life as story. And this relates to something I was going to ask you about. Another somewhat rare quality that can accompany a near-death experience is the phenomenon of the flash forward, where a person doesn't just see a life review, they see parts of their future. They see the year they'll get married or the house that they'll settle in. Very strange. And I wonder what happens if you fight those flash forwards. Let's say you recognize this house from your experience and you intentionally say, nope, I am not buying that house. I saw it in the flash forward. I'm not doing it. Or what if you tell your fiance, hey, we have to wait a year because I know I'm supposed to get married at 28. I want to get married at 29 because I'm just that rebellious. I'm curious, how fixed are these flash forwards? Has that ever been looked at? Yes. How fixed are they? Again, I have thought a lot about that and I don't know. Is it more like one of the old kind of records, you know, the 45s or whatever? The needle drops in the groove and then it's just going to play. Or in the midst of it, is there some way we can shift it? And the answer is, I just don't know. Maybe linear time is an illusion and these things have already happened or are happening all at once. And that just like the material world, the time itself is also an illusion. You can't change it because it's 
already just occurred. You're only getting a glimpse of the end of the story, but the story is the story. Yeah, that one I've reached pretty much. Uh, time is there's something suspicious about it. <laughs> and, you know, as an undergraduate philosophy student, you learn all about this, like how Kant said time is not really out there. It's just part of the framework of our experience or like that makes experience possible. Or Aristotle made a great comment. He said, you know, think about time. He said, it's just so weird. He said, the past, that doesn't exist. And the future, that doesn't exist either. And the so-called present, well, you can't even catch that. You know, I mean, it doesn't stay long enough to observe it. And so there's something very peculiar about the notion of time, which is exactly what people with near-death experiences say. They say, as soon as you're over there, that there's no such thing, time or space, as we appreciate it. You're just in an entirely different framework of reality in which the coordinate points, at least according to, I've heard this from a lot of people with near-death experiences, but my friend, Dr. Eben Alexander, who was a, is a wonderful man, a neurosurgeon, formerly at Harvard for 15 years as a professor there, but Eben had a, a near-death experience, and we were talking about this, and he said, yeah, over there the, on that other world, the coordinates are love, number one. And also information or knowledge. So imagine a state of reality or consciousness in which you orient yourself, not by time or space, but by love and knowledge. I mean, that's a mind-bending thought in itself to me. But yeah, <laughs> yes. and you know, my wife, she's very brilliant, number one. Cheryl has an IQ of 150 plus. <laughs> but fortunately for me, she's also completely unintellectual, right? So you know, she went to art school and she's just very, very brilliant. Yet she's not really a kind of, she'll happily talk like a, philosophical point. She'll be interested. But just by her own, I'd been telling her for years this thing about, yeah, you know, time is unreal. And just a few years ago, she looked at me and she said, you're right. <laughs> time is unreal. It's just something that people grow into, I think. The realization that things that you take as common sense when you're younger the older you get, the more you see it's just a sham, really. I mean, it's a way to enjoy a story is what it is, these assumptions. Yeah, I, I think about this a lot, and I try to equate it to maybe there is a stage, maybe puberty is a good analogy, that obviously this is a process that occurs at a certain age of life all on its own without us doing anything. And maybe there is another stage that's less recognized in the older ages where it triggers some kind of peace and some kind of calmness. It's not as radical as an NDE, but it allows some of those after effects that are common for people who experience them to pour in, like this peace, appreciation of love, a knowing of some kind, this sort of stuff. Maybe we need to identify a new mechanism in the trajectory of a human life that happens after 50 or 60 that contains these qualities. It does, and you might enjoy the guy who was sort of regarded as the expert on that was Eric Erickson, who was a psychiatrist who sort of mapped out these different phases we go through. And like, for example, in their 50s, 
just out of nowhere, if they've never had any interest whatsoever in gardening, but in their 50s, people just naturally develop an interest in gardening. And it's almost like these things are built into us. And then I think that when you die, it's like even more radical that you go through a whole different transformation of orientation where this world that you and I are in now, you see it in the rearview mirror. And then you see that really reality is far more inclusive than this life we're leading, that there is a a much more inclusive reality, which we can glimpse sometimes, like in a mystical experience or a spiritual experience, but that then we quickly got kind of sucked back into this and immersed in it, because the nature of this life we're in is immersion, right? You get Descartes said, for example, he said, I am not lodged in my body as a captain in his ship. And what Descartes was getting at, well, if the ship goes over the rocks, the captain may feel nothing. But if you plow your foot against a sharp rock, then you're going to feel something, right? So we're enmeshed in this thing, and our feelings are kind of tied to what happens to it. But that even within that context, we can get out of it and say, well, no, I'm bigger. I'm a more inclusive being than just my body. Yes, absolutely. And I guess that is the big question. If we were to take near-death experiencers at their word and that these experiences are as real and accurate as they're described, what does that say to you about the meaning and purpose of life itself? Why do you think we're here? I don't think it's random. No, I think this is kind of like a an educational and entertainment opportunity. Yes. I really do. But when you're in it, I had this wonderful woman who was a very wonderful performer. And I met her in the 70s. And she was telling me about this one role that she was famous for. And I don't even know what it was because I'm not in that particular area of performance. So I just knew her as a wonderful person who contacted me about her near-death experience. But she was internationally renowned for her art. And she was telling me, she said, Raymond, she said, this night that I walked off the stage after this role I'd been playing for many years. And she said, and then about several years later, I had a near-death experience. And she said, the closest way I can describe my near-death experience to you She said, it was like that night that I walked off the stage after playing that same role for so many years. And I've heard the same kinds of things from other actors and actresses who've had near-death experiences who use that very kind of analogy that this thing we're in, it's kind of a role, and it's not all of us, but that we get so immersed in it because life comes at you relentlessly, like I was saying. And how reflective do you want to be? I mean, in the sense that I've spent my life kind of being a philosophical thinker, and that's fun for me. You know, I can't distinguish between my work and my fun. You know, I mean, to me, just the most fun thing to do 
for the average day, you know, depart from my family. Of course, that's the reality there. But I mean, in terms of the work life, there's no difference between work and fun. It's like what I like to do is sit around and think about these things. And also there's a realization that comes with that. Therefore, I don't participate as much in this life. And I've often wondered whether when I get over there, I'll look back and say, hey, you know, I've spent so much time in my life reflecting on what this world will be like, like the afterlife world that, you know, I didn't really get engrossed in it. But, you know, there's a certain argument to be made, I guess, that to get engrossed in this and watch it. And what I learned from people with near-death experiences is that it's all okay. <laughs> you know, at, at the end, you know, the death is not the horror that we might imagine it to be. But, you know, sometimes people think of death as like going to sleep, right? Or like diminishing consciousness. But what I hear from people with near-death experiences it's more like waking up than it is going to sleep. And far from diminishing your consciousness, your consciousness zips over to a higher level, actually, and from which this world we're in just becomes kind of dim and unreal. Yes, I agree with you. And when it comes to the near-death experience. The most recent book of yours I read was The Light Beyond, and you identify nine traits of the experience. You say, a sense of being dead, peace and painlessness, an out-of-body experience, a tunneling experience, meeting with people of light, meeting with a more supreme being of light, a life review, a sense of rising rapidly into the heavens, and a reluctance to return. Now, these are all things that people definitely associate with NDEs, but what's curious to me is not all of these happen to everybody every time. Why do you think there is that variance? Do you think it has to do with maybe the medicines a person is under when it comes to a hospital-based experience? Could it relate to memory? What do you think? Well, I'm not sure, but one thing I am pretty confident it has to do with is the, how close the person got to death. Like, in all the thousands of experiences people I've talked with, there's about 15 common elements, like you're saying, that the ineffability of it, the inability to put it into words, the feeling of being out of the body and going through a tunnel and seeing one's life in review and meeting deceased relatives and so on. And not everybody has the whole picture. And it seems to be related on a certain level to how close you got to death. Like people with only a momentary cardiac arrest will be more likely to tell you, for example, I got out of my body and then I came back quickly. Or if the cardiac arrest goes on longer, people may say I went through the tunnel and I began to see my life in review. Whereas these ones where people would talk about seeing everything in the common list, those are, in my experience, almost always the people who have these cardiac arrests that are so long they don't make any sense. Like I've talked to people, you know, who are believed dead for two hours or, you know, just for things that don't really make any medical sense. And yet they happened. And it's not invariable because sometimes people, even with a very brief cardiac arrest, will have a very elaborate experience. 
But in the general cases, it does seem to relate to how close they got to death. Yeah. Very interesting. And it's funny that some people are afraid to look at these things or intimidated by them because I find them to be fear reducing, anxiety reducing. And if we just think about our age a little bit, we are in a time where fear and anxiety, I can't remember when they were any higher. And if you start to think about, well, what is life about? What does happen when we die? What clues can we get? I think it's great armor against anyone who might want to make you fearful in this life because it's just a story. Yeah, it does. Like I said, as long as you can hold on to that framework. And yet, you know, this life being immersive, it presents itself relentlessly to you. And so it's hard to maintain that perspective once you're in the midst of some annoyance or another, right? It's like I can sort of realize, yeah, this is just a story, but then some personal annoyance intrudes and I, you know, all my emotions are engaged and so on. And so you, you know, it pulls you back into it, which is the structure of it, right? Like you can figure out it's an illusion by going through a process, but then the illusion intrudes. (laughs) And, you know, you can't help but focus on it. Yes. That's why you got to trip mushrooms again every couple of years, right? (laughs) (laughs) I kid. I kid. (laughs) But it is about that time. And to tie all these things together, how has this lifelong study affected your thoughts about your own death? How you want to die? How you would prefer your body to be processed, if that matters at all? But the conditions in which you would like to go out based on what you know? Well, you know, at 76, I'm ready to die. At the same time, I've got two kids who are still, you know, 22 and 20. Ideally, I'd like to stay with them for a while to get them started. And I hope for a painless, peaceful, pleasant death. You know, pain, I mean... I'm not afraid of death, but pain is a different story. So, and also another thing that troubles me, being a, had had a lot of work in geriatrics, is that I don't want to go the route of the nursing home and so on. I just want to be out painlessly, peacefully, and pleasantly. So, you know, when I was 18, I read Plato's Phaedo, and in there, Plato says. Philosophy is a rehearsal for dying. And at age 18, I really, that just struck me, and I thought it was so obviously true. Now at age 76, and I look back and, oh my God, you know, that's an amazing thing that an 18 year old would respond to that so strongly as I did. But nonetheless, that's something I've had all my life is that if you just keep death constantly in your mind, then it sort of sorts itself out. And so I'm ready to go. And I also just, I hope, you know, to avoid any pain through the process. And also, I really sort of turn it over to God. I say, you know, it's like I'm not in a position to be able to tell. So I just sort of turn that over to God. And then, like I said, ideally, I would like to stay around with my kids a while to get them on the road. But I'm just not afraid of death, but I am scared of things in life. (laughs) 
Wise, and cheers to that. It sounds like at 76, you've had a full life and you're still racking up accolades <laughs> and accomplishments like making it on the higher side chat. So <laughs> always more to do, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I do feel very lucky to have gotten to talk to the man who coined near-death experience. I find these things fascinating and empowering, a renewed sense of oneness and an appreciation for life and love are simple messages, but they are deep. Yeah. To me, they say that we should take the reins of life and live with purpose. And I appreciate your contribution to drawing more attention to these experiences and messages, whatever they mean. Same here. This just been delightful to spend this time with you. And thanks also to the people who are listening. And just really, what a great opportunity to have this time with you today. So uh, thank you so much. Too kind. And as for the promotional stuff, remind people about your books, your courses, and I think even a new documentary coming out this year, right? That's right. The website is lifeafterlife.com, and it has all the material on it. And the book that I'm proudest of in my life is Making Sense of Nonsense. When I was a kid, my favorite writers were Lewis Carroll and Dr. Seuss. I just loved nonsense. And when I was seven or eight, I had this realization looking through the telescope one night that it doesn't make any sense because, you know, you, how big is this thing we're in? Well, your mind goes out to the wall, but you think, oh, just a minute, doesn't there have to be something on the other side of a wall? But then you think the only other possibility is it goes on and on and on infinitely, but that doesn't make any sense either. And I remember about seven or eight just deciding, well, the world is nonsense. But that was okay to me because I was a great fan of Dr. Seuss and Lewis Carroll. And so my book that I'm really proudest of is my book, Making Sense of Nonsense. And it's a way to reformat your mind, not just to think about cosmic things, but doctors and lawyers and People in advertising, all kinds of people say they find practical results from it for their own profession. So that's the book that I, and I just most enjoy writing. It took me 40 years to write that book, but that's the one I like the most. <laughs> yeah, who knew a life of studying the near-death experience would lead you to making sense of nonsense and trying to form a new type of logic, but I love it. I appreciate your time. You are the man. Well, thank you so much. And this has just been so delightful. And thanks to the people for listening in. Yes, totally. Couldn't do it without them. And you enjoy your day, good sir. You too. All right, guys. How about that? Probably a little unexpected, but I was just thinking about where we are with this virus thing and the levels of fear and anxiety that I see out there. And felt like maybe the best medicine would be to not talk about COVID at all, but just talk about death and consciousness and the glimpses behind the veil that we do get from people who have NDEs. Sort of a what's the worst that could happen scenario. And for my money, a guy like Dr. Moody makes the worst that could happen seem far less severe. Or my name isn't Russ Carlwood. <laughs> Funny that he heard my name as Russ. I wasn't going to correct him until it came up, but the man is 76 years young. It's really no big deal. 
But as I was saying, I know we did some shows looking at pretty radical opinions on COVID, and a lot of that material still stands. I wholeheartedly agree that we have much more control over our health than any of the vested interests are saying. Sure, when pressed, they might admit to it, but it's never part of the 24-hour news cycle. The message is more, go on, keep eating junk food, but just wear that mask. And whatever, you know. But if your circle is anything like mine, then you do know people who have had a sick week with no smell or taste. Of course, that's no big deal. But friends who have lost grandparents, colleagues who have lost family, or people we might know who never left an ICU. And folks dealing with that kind of loss, they don't want to hear about PCR tests or the dangers of ventilators or any of the coulda, woulda, shoulda stuff. So I've been thinking about the isolation that I've seen because of fear and uncertainty and how long it's gone on, a full year. When are you going to come out of hiding, you know? But also the loss that I have seen in my circles lately. And when you deal with a loss, what's left but to deeply contemplate what the death process even is? Because it's not an end, and it is unavoidable. So maybe society doesn't want to talk about it. Maybe the system is best served by everyone being so scared to die that they'll live inside forever. But if you hear out people like Dr. Moody, and you do some exploration of your own, you can reach a place where you know consciousness survives. It makes loss a lot easier, and it encourages fearlessness. Not full-blown recklessness, but fearlessness, which is what I think we need. Maybe it's just that for me, my 36th birthday is next month. Many of my friends are also in their mid-30s, and I'm realizing that COVID or not, again, not trying to say this is a huge COVID commentary, but if you've been lucky enough to escape any real tragedy or loss up into this point, you're probably in the minority, and in a certain sense, you're probably due. It's in the range of human experience, and there's nothing you can do about it except explore the clues and breadcrumbs as to what that process really is. So I set out to do a near-death experience show, and of course I was familiar with Dr. Moody, but I didn't realize he coined the term until I dug more into his work, and that made it all the more perfect. I know this episode clocks in a little bit on the shorter side because we spent probably 40 minutes trying to get his Skype to work. His son was helping us out. It was a big thing. And I can't take up a person's whole day. But we split the difference and covered everything that I had in mind to cover. I am a little less interested in the making sense of nonsense stuff personally, but I totally understand why the work has taken him there and why it would be an intriguing area to wade into. There is something to the nonsensical structure of dream language, of spirit contact, that sort of stuff. You could even say paradoxical. But that aside, I read some great accounts in his book that I don't even think we got to talk about. People who had been blind since their youth, having a near-death experience, and describing medical instruments that didn't exist the last time they had sight recognizing the color of doctor's clothing, 100% seen without their physical body or eyes. Of course, the empathic death experience. That is so crazy. I hope I can die at home surrounded by friends and family. I don't want to be anywhere near the hospital. And if that shaves off a few months at the end of life, then that's fine. If I'm stuck in a hospital bed or a nursing home, I'm not living anyway. 
But you think about something like the empathic death experience, and it's clear to me that we're meant to live this life as if it's the most important thing that we got going on, and it is. But there are so many clues that it's not all there is. Our society does pretty much all it can to strip away or ignore these clues, but they are baked into reality for a reason. Of course, Dr. Moody likes to stay as scientific as he can, so when he says that the near-death experience is not absolute proof that any part of us would survive if the physical body was completely destroyed, or, like, cremated, let's say, sure, logically, I understand what he's saying, but I'm also like, well, come on. Part of the excitement of the whole thing is that you're never going to pin it down 100%. But any explorers who focus on verifying out-of-body experiences for themselves, they can. And they do, all the time. In my case, just because I went out-of-body and talked jive with a few entities a couple of times on Salvia doesn't scientifically prove existence goes on without the body, or that the drug experience is the same as death, but I learned what I needed to learn. It's something that you can just feel. And it's an experience that's just for you. And when you have that experience and you come out sure, you don't really feel the need to prove it or explain it to anyone else. I guess this is all just to say that as much as love is part of the human experience, so is pain and loss. And I hope spending some time with a person who dedicated their whole career to learning about this transition is helpful. It's important to have a framework for this stuff. And I was happy to fortify my own a little bit through the process of preparing for this show and putting out the episode itself. It's not pyramid portals and Martian overlords, but how can a person not be interested in this big mystery of life? And I know I said this, but to me, life is very well designed. We come in with no memory of a before, no sense of realms beyond. Because without the illusion of complete realness, we wouldn't play the game the same way. Fear and uncertainty can be good motivators sometimes. Risk has to feel risky, right? If we knew the game was largely illusionary, there would be no consequences. There would be no meaning. Blair Witch was only cool for the first couple weeks because people thought it was real. Then it was just another movie. But I think the illusion is dialed in just right. Because for those brave enough to push on it, they do get results. They do see through it. And you realize you can do anything you want to do in this life, and it's all right. It's kind of like that Terrence McKenna quote that I always used to apply to the situation of leaving my stable but depressing job and taking the leap into THC, but it applies to life broadly as well. But he said, Nature loves courage. You make the commitment and nature will respond to that commitment by removing impossible obstacles. Dream the impossible dream and the world will not grind you under. It will lift you up. This is the trick. This is what all these teachers and philosophers who really counted, who really touched the alchemical gold, this is what they understood. This is the shamanic dance in the waterfall. This is how magic is done by hurling yourself into the abyss and discovering it's a feather bed. I mean, wow, I just love that. And it's also why I like the Gnostic perspective. But I'm not bitter about the illusion of life. I don't think of it as a prison. It's a game that only works if we think it's real. But if you look for them, there are just enough clues to make you confident that it probably isn't. 
and at the end of the day, we have nothing to fear. And in our most vulnerable moments, the universe does have enough empathy to remind us of that. A message I think is crucial in 2020 and 2021. It's a beautiful thing. So live, goddammit, live! And I'll see you next time. Life After Life is Dr. Moody's website. Let him know you like the show. Give his books to your loved ones. Check out his courses. Sign up for THC Plus if you want more ad-free THC. It's the best way to make sure nothing comes between us and shows that this podcast has value to you. And or, of course, leave me a voicemail about your own thoughts and experiences and theories at thehiresidechats.com slash voicemail, and I'll play them on the next joint session bonus show for plus people. But anyway, I've done my part. Your move, astral travelers, near-death experiencers, and piercers of the veil. Your fucking move. Truth has been hidden from me the TV and obey Take some more pills when you're blue Or we'll break you out of the spell that you're in Together we Thank you.